We're going to be looking this morning at 1 John 4. You might like to be turning there in the little letters of John for uh, those who uh, have not been here uh, through these last uh, three months. Uh, actually, uh, we started in January or late December uh, considering the book of 1 John uh, one Sunday a month. Those four different ones of us uh, kind of uh, rotating the, the preaching. Uh, and uh, uh, we've been trying to catch this uh, last letter of John late in his life. Uh, one who uh, had such great transformation uh, in his life. Uh, and I'm not going to go back and recap the first three chapters, but I'm also uh, wanting this morning to uh, introduce uh, 1 John 4, uh, not on the basis of the first three chapters alone, uh, but uh, on the basis of, uh, of Jesus' life. Uh, we have a little note in the bulletin uh, that says uh, uh, Jesus uh, was uh, born in a barn and he was laid or cribbed in a feed trough uh, and uh, uh, much of the world around us calling uh, the name of Christ today or have their minds on uh, what is uh, in what's sometimes called the Christian uh, calendar, Palm Sunday. Uh, and it's because of uh, what we read in uh, the triumphal entry, the, the last week of Jesus' earthly life before his crucifixion, uh, when in fact he uh, entered Jerusalem uh, on the back of a donkey. Uh, and yet the people, and I've urged you in the bulletin there to read those four accounts of, of the triumphal entry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in all four. Uh, and, and to consider uh, this Jesus who uh, had, and I'm going to read it, uh, uh, had a, uh, a donkey uh, uh, borrowed and um, the people then, uh, his disciples had a reaction that was criticized. And uh, uh, they put their garments on the back of the donkey and they put their garments on the ground and, and they cut down uh, branches, and some of them were palm trees, if one account says, and spread those for him to come. And, and the setting for that uh, in the Luke account, now in other places it's, it's Lazarus and, and his resurrection or his being um, brought back to life and, uh, and, and then Jesus having uh, been over at Bethany. But um, the, the setting for it in Luke is, uh, Jesus says, this kingdom we're part of is, is kind of like a nobleman uh, who, who came uh, and, 
and uh, gathered the three people that are talked about in Jesus' parable, and and he's going to go on a journey, but he gives he he gives each of the uh, three. Uh, one translation says a pound. And one person took that pound and when the nobleman came back to find out what he'd done with that pound, uh, he gained 10 pounds. Uh, and uh, another uh, made five pounds. And the the third one was so afraid because he he knew the nobleman uh, was strict about things and and productive and uh, and he said I took your pound and 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 I secured it and here's your pound back and uh, Jesus said take that man's pound and give it to the one that has 10 pounds. And the end of the story uh, in Luke 19, 25, uh, the people said to him, Lord, he already has 10 pounds. And Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has will more be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slay them before me. When he had said this, Luke says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and uh, went away and found it as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their garments on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their garments on the road. And as he was now drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude, they were, they were always being critical, weren't they? Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And I'm just drawn to, uh, I don't know 
the article in the bulletin this morning about our sometimes letting God do his work and not trying to do it for him works, I think, to help us introduce 1 John 4. As we begin, let's remember that Jesus, who was God coming in human form, was born in a barn and he rode the back of a donkey on his way into Jerusalem. And in John's account, John says they spread palm branches on the road as Jesus rode the donkey. It was a humble birth. And in humility, our Lord entered the week of his sacrifice for the sins of the world, your sins and my sins. And so let's move to 1 John 4. Beloved, I'm in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from or of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. Little children, you are of God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. I'm going to uh, touch that, that thought in just a minute. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of God. So verse 1 says, we are to test every spirit because uh, some spirits are of God and, and some are just uh, not of God. In fact, uh, he likens it to the Antichrist that he brought up in the chapter before, uh, that which uh, works against Christ. And then in verse 4 he says, uh, of God, uh, uh, the, the ones that have the Spirit of God are overcomers because God is greater than the Spirit that's in the world. And verse 6 says, If we listen to John and the other eyewitnesses, and you can remember what we studied back in 1 John 1, uh, the first four verses where, and I wrote them down, uh, where John... Uh, says uh, they had heard Jesus. Their ears heard Jesus. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They, they proclaimed Jesus. And, and they are who we're to listen to. And here in verse four, uh, verse six of chapter four, 
says, when listening to them, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It may appear that one spirit is as good as another in the world, but John says that's not true. One spirit overcomes and the other spirit does not. One abides in Jesus Christ and his spirit abides in them. And that's the followers uh, of God's son. Mama, I need to follow. You need water. Thank you. My mouth is going dry. But there's a strange twist here in 1 John 4. Because as we move on, we notice, and I'll read verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice, the expiation, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Isn't that a strange kind of twist on being of God or from God and and having what is from God uh, made visible. When we started 1 John back in January, we noted from verse 8 here, God is love. We noted from verse 19, we love, we love because he first loved us. And then we noted from verse 20, one, and we'll read it, and it says, and this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. And interestingly, that message is also in verse 7, verse 11, and verse 20, here in 1 John 4. So, knowing God, Knowing we are loved by God are both dependent on our knowing God's love. We see the effect of God. It's, it, it's kind of like happened this week. The wind blows. The wind blows strong. Did you see the wind? No, you didn't. You saw the effect of the wind. You saw what the wind did. We're using electricity. Do you, do you see the electricity? No, you don't. You, you see the effect. You see what electricity produces. 
And the effect of God is meant to be love because God is love. Let's keep going in 1 John 4. We'll read the last of it, 13 to the end. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. But notice the next verse. In this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and he who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love Christ and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God should love his brother also. God is love. <laughs> we could sing that song, couldn't we? God is love explains or is the foundation for five things that I've listed for us this morning. The first thing is that God, and I'm using the plural as in Genesis 1.1, explains creation. You see, the nature of love is that love shares, but there is no way to share if there is no one to share with. And so the very nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, indicates that there was some interaction from the beginning. And the Word was flesh, and the Word I mean, the Word was God, and the Word is God, and, and the Word became flesh, and the Spirit was moving on the face of the waters. All of this matter of the plural God allows for love, and yet the Godhead wanted to share, and so created the world and created human beings in their image in order for us to share in the nature of God. Second, God being love explains or demands free will. Think about the nature of God for him, uh, the nature of love for a minute. Uh, the very nature of love is that if it is coerced or forced or manipulated or, or brought about by threatening, 
that response means nothing. But when we freely, when we freely show love to someone, that love has real meaning. And so all that's involved in, in love and love being like God is, is dependent on our being allowed to freely give love. Third, God's love provides. Uh, Gordon started us into the Sermon on the Mount a moment ago. Just go read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and see if much of what Jesus begins his ministry with and talks about is how God provides for the human race, for people. Fourth, it explains redemption or salvation. Read the Gospel John, chapter 3, and Nicodemus' discussion uh, with Jesus late at night or in the darkness of night, uh, uh, trying to come to understand what it is uh, to have salvation, to be a new creature. And then that favorite verse of, of John 3.16 uh, that talks about God so loved the world that he gave his only son and goes on and talks about Jesus did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Fifthly, it provides life for eternity rather than just for a time. Thank, thanks for your explanation of the tide of time and eternity. Uh, we're not flowers or vegetation. We're eternal beings like the Godhead. And for that then to be brought into fruition in being more like the God who loves. But before I leave that kind of theme, let's, let's look a minute at how um, love makes Jesus some things in life. Love makes Jesus the provision of life and light. We, we don't learn the things we're talking about this morning or the things that John has revealed and talked about in, in 1 John. We, we, we don't understand those. All you have to do is, is look at life without Christ and see how uh, it is lived out uh, in, in the lives of people in I don't want to just say big cities, but it's, it's much more apparent where we're all cramped together uh, than it is where we have a little bit of, of um, place to, to spread our, our wings and our understanding. And so look at the I am statements of Jesus and see uh, that love is what makes Jesus the provision of life and light. But first John, in first John, John has been saying, love makes Jesus the restorer of fellowship. 
especially our fellowship with God and also our fellowship with one another. Without love, there, there, there really is no way to perpetuate relationship. Ephesians 3, 4 into 5 talks about uh, that very concept that it's going to take a heap of forgiveness. It's going to take a it's going to take a heap of trying to understand. It's going to take a it's going to take a heap of being kind and and tender-hearted in, in order for us uh, to maintain relationships. Thirdly, love makes Jesus our Savior. He could have called ten thousand angels. He could have he he could have prevented he he could have avoided the cross but out of his love he loves us love makes jesus the son of god if god is love guess what jesus is love spirit produces love so before concluding Let's look for just a minute at verses 17 and 18 again. In this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Talking now about the redeemed. We're talking about those in whom Christ lives, and we are living in him. And it says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And he who fears is not perfected in love. I want us to stop and think, each of us, about what it is we fear. Think about the things that, that well up fear in you. And then ask yourself, how do I gain confidence? Verse 17. How do I cast out fear that is gripping me? Verse 18. And if you ask those questions, here's part of where you'll go. And this is in verse 17 and verse 18. Because you are going to only lose your fear of judgment when you see God in the light in which God reveals himself. If, if you listen to what it, what it was, I, I've, I, I, I've known, I've seen, I've, I've done some of it myself, Tried not to. Sometimes I, I want to make God the policeman of my children. And, and, and so I teach my children by showing them the blame of God in their lives. And when there's 
this fear of judgment or of punishment, then we're going to be a people who only react to punishment. 17 is getting over your fear of judgment. 18 is getting over your fear of punishment and coming to the point where life is lived on a different realm. I keep looking at myself back, back over the years as a parent of young children and then watching them develop and grow and, and, and start their own families and, uh, and, and then looking at them as, as their children are becoming independent, my grandchildren, uh, and as their lives are moving from stage to stage. And, and what I, I guess, wrestle with the most is how could it have been different when I've gone to either of my boys and, and said, I guess I was a little hard on you sometimes in life. They, they've been kind and, and said, Dad, well, uh, it, it's okay. We're, we're doing okay. And the reason they're doing okay is because they've learned that God loves them and I'm trying to love them the same way God loves them. Uh, and um, there doesn't need to be a fear of either judgment uh, or punishment. There needs to be a desire to grow more to be like God is. And so the next question is, how will I, how will you, we each ask ourselves, how will we perfect or mature our godly love in our lives? So where do we go? 1 Corinthians 13. Back through 1 John over and over again. Maybe the whole message of God in the right perspective, in the right balance, in the right usage. And guess what? And I've, I've pulled all of these just from Scripture. But I've got five peoples that we need to learn to love and show love to. First, of course, 1 John 4. Brethren, how are we going to learn to love our brethren? Family members, how are we going to make sure love permeates our homes and our relationships with those that have the same blood we do? But then scripture talks about loving those not like you. How do we find a way to become more loving to people that are different from us? Or scripture talks about loving strangers. How do I, how do I grow to where I know better how to treat strangers. And you know I can't leave out the last one. 
love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Can you come up to some or with some other categories? People, people are human. Jesus became human. Jesus lived his humanity perfectly. We don't, but we are all, we are all. The worst person you can think of in this world is created in the image of God. When, how can we better make God come alive in the world? So in conclusion, all of this is anchored in the witness of the Spirit and the water and the blood. We'll see that next month in 1 John 5, 8. All of it is anchored in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, 1 John 5. And, and we can complicate it so easily, so much. And so when we get to the very end of 1 John, here's what we are going to read, and I just give you this preview, and then we're going to pray together. John says, 1 John 5, 13 to the end, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin which is mortal. We're going to have to struggle with this one. And we'll look at it. We may take a whole lesson on it two months from now. But there is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin which is not mortal. And John leaves it there. And I ask you to work with it in order to wrestle with what sin can we ask God to forgive? And what sin are we not to ask God to forgive because it's just not, not possible in God's scheme of things for there to be redemption from the mortal sin which I guess is, which I guess is the one unforgivable sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us, help us, help us, please, to take the message of 1 John 
and let it lift up our spirits. Let it cause us, Father, to be able to live more with the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all in that, that list that, that we have in Galatians. And help us, Father, help us to be able to find the love of God that overcomes our fears and brings us closer to you, your Son, your Spirit, and our eternity. May it begin now. We pray in Jesus' name.